very warm welcome to a new episode of the UPSC Prep Decoded, a podcast by the Abhyankar's IS for UPSC aspirants so that you can study on the go. This is our 36th episode and I am your host, Shreya. In this episode of In Conversation With, we are having a conversation with Aditya Pillay. Aditya is an associate fellow at the Initiative for Climate, Energy and Environment. He studies how states arrange their climate change institutions and the politics of regional electricity trade in South Asia. In his previous roles, he has been a program officer at the Asia Foundation. He managed the foundation's support to South Asian civil society on transboundary river issues in the Indus, Ganga and Brahmaputra, which spanned over 40 organization themes from climate change adaptation to Indian waterway cooperation and energy. He has also anchored the foundation's research and action on the water-food energy nexus in the region. His research interests lie in political and institutional underpinnings of natural resource governance and climate change in South Asia. Prior to this, he examined the nebulous role of state power in transboundary river management at the Center for Policy Research. He has a master's degree in international security from Sciences Po in Paris. Welcome to this episode, Aditya. We're very glad to have you. For the benefit of our listeners, could you quickly trace the international events that shaped India's climate policy? In reality, how this whole situation has worked is climate policy was essentially, it started from Western science. It was something that took countries like Germany, the UK, um, and the US as early as the 70s. It, it was a part of their policy, but only started uh, infiltrating um, policies in the developing world um, from Rio, right? So Rio is like a big landmark event in the uh, climate policy universe. 1991, the first uh, conference uh, of parties was at Rio. Um, it it brought all the countries together and it was the first summit that tackled climate change uh, explicitly. It's called the Earth Summit. And every year after that, we've had conference of parties. And Copenhagen was a big one. You saw, and of course, you've all heard of Paris and Paris Agreement in 2015, right? So these are the three big watershed moments in climate negotiations. It's at Rio that the conversation first began about where is the justice here, right? Countries in India turned around and said, we didn't do any of the emission. And you're asked, you, well, you might potentially ask us to hold back on our emissions. India and China said, we have half of the world's population. These guys consume very little to no energy. Um, And so don't turn around and uh, ask us to um, bear the cost uh, for a problem we we didn't really commit. And the key principle there is a principle uh, the principle of common but differentiated responsibility. This is legalese. Um, it's it's a term from international law. Um, it is now almost a norm. It, it is approaching a norm in international law. It's kind of like soft law because it's written into all climate agreements. But this was the West. Uh, the West and the developing world sort of got into the nego- this negotiation about historical responsibility. And there was a concession made and the CBDR norm was born. And it essentially said, if we're tackling climate change, first and foremost, it'll be the responsibility of uh, developed countries to tackle the problem. And only then will developing countries be asked 
um, to to do anything. This has since changed. With Paris, everything sort of turned upside down. But the whole idea was that the developing countries preserve, preserve their room for growth. And the number one proponent of this in 1991 was India. So uh, it was the Indian negotiation team that really put this on the map. They were the head of a group of nego negotiate, negotiating countries called the G77. It was a block of developing, underdeveloped, uh, low-lying island states, etc. that sort of put this, put this front and center. Um, and I'll just get into Paris. The reason Paris is important is because it totally flips this. Paris, up until Paris, um, and it really started with this thing called the Kyoto Protocol, which again is sort of this landmark thing in, in, in climate politics. The Kyoto Protocol was very simply uh, an agreement between a bunch of developed countries saying that we will commit to certain emissions reductions, right? There was a lot of politics and hedging around the Kyoto Protocol. Um, it was supposed to play out over a two-decade time span, but what it did was it isolated the rest of the world from countries that are already developed. So industri industrial industrialized countries were asked um, uh, or agreed to amongst themselves reduce their emissions, and developing countries were accept. So it was a what they call a top-down approach, right? The UNFCCC sets targets for a bunch of countries to reduce emissions. Paris flipped it and made it what they call bottom-up, where countries just said, okay, this is what we're willing to commit to you based on our development trajectory, the political circumstances in our countries. And, um, and the hope is at a cumulative uh, level, all of this adds up to enough to decrease global warming by 1.5 to 2 degrees. So it's, it's, but there's no assurance that this will happen. And in fact, right now it doesn't happen. We don't get to a point where we can limit global warming to 1.5 degrees by the end of the century, right? So it, it kind of hopes that it'll happen and hopes that countries constantly increase their ambition. So it's all about trusting countries to know what is right, to fulfill their moral obligations and so on. And th this is one of the big reasons the Paris Agreement attracts a lot of criticism. It's also one of the big reasons that people think Par uh, that Paris is uh, sustainable because it doesn't force top-down politics, right? Um, the conundrum for big countries like India and China is, are you a responsible power, right? I mean, you now have to sort of um, uh, show that, that you're ready to... Uh, step up to the big stage, even without any top-down enforcement. That was great. Uh, a quick dive into the issue, but very explanatory as well. Moving on to the next question. So politics is usually a reflection of the society. So when people at large, uh, you know, the general public, they're not concerned much about environment, say the carbon emissions and such. How do we push the legislators to make laws on that? The politics, the way it's been structured so far in Indian history, the last 30 years, the, the political push has not come from the people of India, but it's come from international sources, right? Every time there's like a big thing happening at the international level, the prime minister will sort of get into a situation where they feel, okay, we have to do something. We have to show our partners that we're sort of responsible global actors. We, we can't be outshone by China. China is doing all this great stuff. So we have to show us, showcase ourselves as an emerging leader. So there's that norm thing about like we're a responsible actor. That's the political push. 
political push is not coming from you, me, and uh, our fellow citizens, right? The, and that's really the big conundrum about the climate law. Um, because if you want a bunch of parliamentarians to agree to it, um, there's two ways of going about it. One, you create a law that is an international showcase type of event where you say, okay, listen, we're an emerging power, we've created a climate law, and then you take it to the UNFCCC and the COPs and say, this is what we've done. You probably won't get like a really hardcore climate law out of that. Um, the local stuff, there isn't enough political pressure. Um, and I honestly don't see there being enough pressure at any time soon for us to create a climate law like that. The third alternative is out of enlightened self-interest. Our bureaucrats and politicians say this is what the country needs and therefore we're going to do it. And we're going to impose costs on all those brick guys and the cement guys and, and, and the steel manufacturers. This is not going to happen, right? So the, the political window for a law is to my mind, very, very slim, but the, the necessity of a law is huge. Um, now, where can it come from? It can come through things like air pollution, actually, because if that becomes a big enough public health issue, then you might get knock-on effects on uh, things like uh, uh, thermal emissions, right? It could come from states that really care about renewable energy and major renewable energy exporters. Andhra Pradesh has come out and said they're going to build over 100 gigawatts of solar primarily for export. Now, a state like that will support a climate law because they want everyone to reduce the amount of other sources of energy that they're consuming, right? So there are interesting political sort of possibilities on the horizon. The I don't know if there are enough to push the climate law conversation uh, uh, very far. Um, but yeah, great question. I mean, I, I, I think that is the number one question when it comes to climate. Uh, uh, and, and we think about it every day and we're not super optimistic. What would a climate law cover specifically that is not already covered in the various sectoral laws? Do we really need more laws or is the problem in its implementation? And if we fix implementation, would we see success? Now, the thing is, you're right, there are a bunch of sectoral laws and there are a bunch of sectoral policies. To my mind, and this is an open question, to my mind, what is necessary from a climate law is actually you set, a, set up a bunch of processes that are foolproof, right? Now, what could this look like? Let me give you the, a little example from the UK. And the UK has the gold standard climate law, right? It's called the UK Climate Change Act, um, internationally touted as best practice. The way it works is it creates a it creates a committee, a committee of the best and the brightest, really smart people. The this committee basically recommends carbon budgets for the government of the UK, so the executive branch, right? It's an independent. It's like kind of like the RBI. It's it's completely removed from politics. It says this is your target for the next five years, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, right? And then it basically says the government has to report back on whether it has met those targets or not. It relies partially on the fact that there is so much political churn in the UK at the moment on climate change and they're willing to go out onto the streets for it, right? So if the government doesn't meet it, regardless of Boris Johnson, Theresa May, or if it's the Labour Party, Whichever government's in power, if you don't meet it, you're going to get a lot of political pushback. What the act does and what the committee does is it 
brings that conversation into the public domain in a very big way because it creates a checkpoint if you miss the checkpoint answer as to um, why the UK Climate Change Act does and puts it front and center. So what I'm saying, um, just one step more abstract is you don't need something that goes and says you need to do X, Y, Z little policy thing, right? Uh, in this sector, in this sector, in this sector, in this sector. That's not how the law will work. The law will basically say that the government of India needs to create a process and be held accountable for that process. So it will be an annual stock take, it will be public reporting requirements. So if, if the government of India every year had to come out with a landmark sort of report that said these are the things that we've done on climate change, both on adaptation and mitigation, that would automatically create a political cycle of accountability, right? Because the media would pick it up, you guys would read about it, you guys would discuss it, it would be on WhatsApp. So that's the kind of soft stuff that a law could actually do long-term virtuous cycles. So it's, 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 it's less about dictating nitty gritty. Um, other countries have, have, have approached this question sophisticated ways. And I think that we can learn from that. Thank you so much, Aditya. This is a very short, but a very informative session. We are very glad to have you hoping to have more interactions with you in the future. Dear listeners, your inputs, feedback, suggestions, and most importantly, your questions are of importance to us. Do send them in and we will try our best to address them. If you like this episode, please show us some love by hitting the like button. Download the episode to access your favorite episode anytime, anywhere. We are now available on major streaming platforms, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify. We also have a Facebook page, an Instagram handle, and a Twitter handle all by the name of Abhyankar's IAS. Please do visit our website and to get in touch with us, our email ID is info at abhyankarias.com. So that's it for today, folks. See you in a week's time. Meanwhile, stay safe, stay wise, and have a great day.